Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing stoicism and mental resilience. My guest today is Donald Robertson. Mr. Robertson is a cognitive behavioral therapist, trainer, and writer with over 20 years' experience in the fields of psychotherapy and self-improvement. He's the author of six books on philosophy and psychotherapy and contributed to several others. He specializes in Stoic philosophy and its relationship with modern psychology and psychotherapy, as well as in resilience training and in evidence-based treatment and anxiety. He's one of the founding members of Modern Stoicism Limited, a nonprofit organization based in England, run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers, including philosophers, classicists, psychologists, and cognitive therapists. I bet you guys have a really good happy hour. Modern Stoicism promotes and conducts research into modern applications of ancient Stoic philosophy. Donald holds an MA with honors in philosophy from the University of Aberdeen, an MA in psychoanalytic studies from the University of Sheffield, and a postgraduate diploma in the advanced practice of cognitive behavioral psychotherapy from King's College, University of London, as well as other professional certifications in psychotherapy. He's a former registrant of the UK Council for Psychotherapy and European Association for Psychotherapy. Mr. Robinson, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Uh, I listened to a couple of episodes last night, actually, and I'm really looking forward to being interviewed by you. Oh, well, good. Thank you. I'm excited to be talking about Stoicism. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself. What brought you to the study of Stoicism? Well, that's actually something that I had to write about in my book recently. So there's a bit of a story to it. When I was a young guy, my father passed away when I was about 13 years old, and he was a Freemason. That was a big thing in the town where I lived in Scotland, and so he didn't leave much behind except some books in Freemasonry, and I read those, and I read about the four cardinal virtues in them of wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance, and I saw all these references to Greek philosophy, to names like Plato and Pythagoras. So as a teenager, I began reading about classical philosophy, and then I studied philosophy at university. And I was looking for a way to kind of help myself, I guess. I was a bit of a troubled teen, and I wanted to to learn about the classics. I'd got this idea about a kind of philosophy. It was a bit like a religion, a sort of way of life, a worldview. And so I was searching, and I didn't find it at university, because the one school of traditional philosophy, of ancient philosophy, that wasn't covered was Stoicism. And it's not normally part of the undergraduate curriculum. So when I graduated, I stumbled across the Stoics and something just kind of clicked immediately. And that was 20 odd years ago. And I still feel the same way about it. I was interested in meditation techniques. I wanted to be able to help other people. So I was studying psychotherapy and counseling and I was looking for a philosophy of life. And these seemed like different things to me. I was kind of juggling all these balls. And then with Stoicism, they all just kind of coalesced suddenly into one thing. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, with a sense of relief, this means that I only need to read one bunch of books now. (laughs) I don't need to read as many books. It's just one. I just need to keep reading the Stoics and I'll be good. And so it brought all of those things together for me beautifully. And I still feel that way about it today. So for our listeners who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about Stoicism. What are the core tenets? What makes it uh, a unifying kind of theory of living? Well, 
the Stoics, I think of, I'm a, I would call myself a kind of Socratic Stoic. I, I believe that the Stoics were in the Socratic tradition and they were, they were developing very much the philosophy of Socrates. And uh, some of our historical sources suggest that at least some of the Stoics saw themselves that way as well. And so they got this idea from Socrates. I'll explain it to you actually by talking about one of Socrates' dialogues called the Euthydemus. I think it's the best way to put it across. So in that dialogue, Socrates asks the question, what is good fortune? Like, what does it mean to really have a good life? Like, you know, what's the, what's the goal? Like, what's the pinnacle of life? And Socrates usually begins by asking a kind of dumb question in a way that seems to have an obvious answer. So his interlocutor says, well, Socrates, everyone knows, like, it's like having money and lots of friends and noble birth and being healthy and all that kind of stuff. Like, what sort of question is that? And then Socrates proceeds to say, well, let's look at these one at a time and let's start with wealth. Surely wealth is good if you use it wisely, but it's bad if you use it stupidly. Like you could just blow it all on drugs or something like that, we might say today. So in the hands of the vicious and foolish, wealth isn't necessarily a good thing. It just gives them more opportunity to do more foolish and vicious things. It's more like an opportunity to express your character than something that's intrinsically good. And then he proceeds to argue that that's true of all the other external things that were named. And then he concludes, doing a classic Socrates move, flipping everything around, he says, maybe it's none of these things that really constitute good fortune, but good fortune consists in having the wisdom to know how to use everything else well. And ironically, someone who has that wisdom may even be able to use the opposite things. They may be able to use poverty and sickness in a good way and flourish under those circumstances. And the deeper irony is there always is in Plato's dialogues is that this kind of reflects on the life of Socrates himself because Socrates was poor and ridiculed and elderly when we know think of him as a philosopher and persecuted and executed. But nevertheless, he became a great hero and people would say, the Stoics used to say, would Socrates' life have been made better if he had more money or if people admired him more? wasn't, in a sense, the adversity that he faced that made him such a, a great man and in such a great life. So the Stoics took this idea, and whereas Socrates, we, we have these dialogues that seem at first a, a bit all over the place, and the Stoics, we have them, I sometimes say the Stoics are kind of rather glibly, a little bit like a kind of bullet point version of Socrates. They take Socrates' basic ideas and develop them into a, a practical systematic way of life. So the Stoics ask the question, what would it really be like to live as though moral wisdom was the, the goal of life? And, uh, you know, they call this arity or virtue. I'd, we usually translate arity as virtue or excellence of character, but sometimes I think it's clearer to call it moral wisdom because it's really a kind of insight that they're talking about. It's this insight into uh, how we should behave in different situations. And that's really what the Stoics believe, that arity is the only true good. And then the corollary of that is that everything else is, in a sense, unimportant or relatively indifferent. Health, wealth, and opportunity aren't uh, intrinsically important, but they're merely opportunities for us to exercise either folly or wisdom in life. So this is interesting. I teach Stoicism as part of an elective that I have at Command and Staff College here. And the students are drawn to it. There is this caricature uh -huh. that Stoicism is hardness, that, yes. that you are unfeeling. <laughs> and I call him Epictetus. If, if I've got that pronunciation wrong, correct me. But he even has somewhere in the Enchiridion that, you know, if, if your wife dies or if your child yeah. dies, eh, but go on with life as if it were you broke a cup. So there's a, a sense of perpetuating the stereotype 
Can you talk a little bit about this, what it means to be indifferent to adversity vice just shutting down your humanness? Mm-hmm. Well, Epictetus also says to his students, they, I, I believe they ask him the question, because in the discourses, the main text we have, it's a record of discussions that he has, um, almost like a, what we might call a workshop today. I bet we can see these dialogues going on, like a live transcript. And uh, somebody says, you know, ask him about love, Epictetus says, look, look, by all means, a Stoic or a wise man or woman would love, but they would do so in accord with wisdom. And for the Stoics, that would mean this kind of like paresi or plain speaking, this kind of brutal honesty with oneself, like admitting that the person that you love is mortal and that they're not entirely under your control. So it would be a love that's free of attachment and the accepts uh, our own and the other person's mortality. So that might seem pretty stark. This is one of the most challenging aspects of Stoicism. But in their defense, the Stoics would say we're just being honest. And what would the alternative be? Perhaps the alternative would be a kind of self-deception in a way. Like if we loved someone in in a way where we were becoming more emotionally attached or clingy or demanding or something like that we'd be behaving as though things that aren't directly under our control were and that would simply be a lie it would be unphilosophical we'd be deceiving ourselves if we did that so if we're completely honest we end up we can still love but it is this slightly less attached kind of love and that but then the stoics would like to argue that this philosophical kind of love is the only real love and also that it's a healthier love because the epictetus goes on to say that the sort of attached love where we cling on to people and we refuse to admit that yeah, they're mortal or that they might turn away from us one day or they might do things that are objectionable to us epictetus says like this inevitable this is i would say this is a recipe for neurosis Epictetus says this is this is a way that's going to make you emotional and distressed and cause suffering. And he virtually says, how can this be genuine love if it's also destroying you and causing suffering? And so the only type of love that doesn't do that, he thinks, is this sort of philosophical, honest love, although this might be radically different from what our modern culture thinks of as romantic love. Mm-hmm. So how does that tie to cognitive behavioral therapy? You were drawn to Stoicism out of a desire to help people live fuller, more truthful, honest lives. A lot of people won't pick up Stoic philosophy and yeah. and really dig into it. So what's, what's it got to do with CBT is that, well, cut a long story short, there were psychotherapists at the beginning of the 20th century that were also into Stoicism, but they, they kind of dropped out of history, as it were. They got forgotten about a guy called Paul Dubois, who was really into Seneca and got his students to read Seneca, his patients to read Seneca. But the guy that really introduced Stoicism to psychotherapy was Albert Ellis in New York in the 1950s, who was one of the pioneers of cognitive therapy. He did this thing called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, or REBT, as it became known. And he was one of the founding fathers of cognitive therapy. And the essence of cognitive therapy is the cognitive theory of emotion. Very simply, it says that our emotions are fundamentally shaped or determined, although not exclusively so, but in an important sense, they're determined by underlying beliefs. That's what we mean when we say cognition, a thought or a belief. And that's much more important than it might seem at first in the practice of psychotherapy. Because one of the things that clients often do in therapy is they'll come into the consulting room and they'll talk a lot about their anger or their fear or sadness and, and how 
much suffering it's causing, how it's damaging the relationships and how it's ruining the life and so on. And so it becomes obvious that the, these feelings are, are having negative consequences and they, they want to do something about it. And then a lot of clients will say, and I know it's wrong and I know it's destroying my relationship. And I know it's unhealthy, but it's just the way I feel. And that's kind of a, like a chess move. Like it's a, a, it's a way of defending. It's a way of saying, yeah, but I can't do anything about it. I can't really change. It's just the way I feel. And Ellis used to say, but it's not just the way you feel. It's also the way that you think because feelings are thoughts. They're shaped by underlying beliefs and attitudes. If you're anxious, then at some level underlying that, you believe that something bad is going to happen soon and that you won't be able to cope with it. Like if you're angry, it's because you believe that somebody is going to harm you or that they've violated some rule or transgressed some boundary and they deserve to be punished or something along those lines anyway. There's an attitude or a belief generally that's underlying feelings. And when the attitude or belief changes, then the feelings tend to change. And, you know, this opens up a whole repertoire of therapy techniques because now we can, first of all, just by identifying what the beliefs are, it gives people more control and more awareness. Secondly, the fundamental technique of cognitive therapy, which came after Ellis, is founded by Aaron T. Beck. He really made uh, cognitive therapy more research-based and brought it much more into the mainstream following on from Ellis's work. And Beck's approach was famous for asking clients, where's the evidence for that? So the client with a panic attack, for example, it would be very common with clients who have panic disorder to think I'm going to have a heart attack and die. And that makes them much more anxious. But actually it's false, right? People with panic disorder, their heart's beating fast because of anxiety, but they're not, that never causes them to have a heart attack and die. It's like an urban myth or whatever. So usually we, we get clients to, to challenge that belief and test it. So we would say, where's the evidence for that? And when they convince themselves it's not true, then that generally alleviates their anxiety. If that's, if that's the nature of the belief. And so Ellis thought, well, how can I teach this to people? And he'd studied the Stoics. He had been a Freudian and he'd abandoned psychoanalytic therapy, decided he was going to start again from scratch. And decades earlier, he remembered as a teenager, he'd read Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, not so much Seneca. But, and he thought, I remember this quote from Epictetus, and it says, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. And that became a cliche in psychotherapy. He taught it to all of his clients and all of his patients. And so every cognitive therapist, at least in the past, knew this particular quote from Epictetus, even if they didn't read anything else from the Stoics. But it's a good quote because it perfectly encapsulates the cognitive theory of emotion and one of the, the base, not the most fundamental principle of Stoicism, arguably, but one of one of the central psychological principles of ancient Stoicism. And that's really the connecting point. And then Stoicism influenced CBT in a number of other ways, but also because they both begin from the same premise, this shared premise of the cognitive nature of emotion, they tend to arrive at similar conclusions, sometimes anyway independently. So they're kind of cousins to one another in that sense, if you like. So I've just finished David Brooks's new book, The Second Mountain, uh-huh. and and in his conclusion to that book, he makes a very strong case for the importance of community to undergird psychological health and wellness. So he would attribute anxiety to the, the disaffectation or dislocation of individuals from community. As I've studied stoicism, I've seen it as this almost hyper-individualistic, there is all of this in the world that I have no control over, I got to let it go. I have to be focused on controlling what I own. And that is 
that mastery, you never get there, but that continued practice is what enables me to live a free and happy, healthy, full life. Those seem at odds. Yeah. The individual mastery or focus and the deep embeddedness in community. How do you see those two relate to each other? Well, first of all, a kind of side note, which is probably important for listeners. The word stoicism, like sometimes it helps to distinguish between capital S stoicism and lowercase stoicism. So like many names of philosophies uh, from ancient Greece, like Epicureanism and Cynicism, they, they've come to mean different things, almost a bit of a caricature of what they originally meant. So by lowercase stoicism, we mean kind of repressing or concealing unpleasant emotions, something like that, being just being tough-minded and so on. And whereas capitalist stoicism is a whole school of philosophy that lasted for 500 years, and it's a lot more complex and nuanced than that. So there's some kind of superficial similarities. It's true that the ancient Stoics were known for a kind of emotional resilience or toughness, but they also put an awful lot of emphasis on social virtue, on natural affection or philistorgia, on what they call cosmopolitan ethics or the idea that we're all part, we're all citizens of a, a single universal city. And so they are this other stoicism that I would uh, draw your attention to. Uh, the easiest way to kind of highlight the, anomal the anomaly there is that stoicism historically was also one of the major influences on early Christian ethics. So the Christian idea of the brotherhood of man seems to be inherited to a large extent from the Stoics. And so this Stoic Christian tradition really seems kind of at odds with the idea that Stoicism is just mental toughness or individual resilience. And so the Stoics said, look, the, the most important thing in life is virtue, but in the social sphere, virtue would consist in treating other people fairly and also with kindness also having a kind of bond of affection towards them insofar as they're also possessed of reason. And so Marcus Aurelius on virtually every page of the meditations talks about viewing other humans as his kin, his brothers and sisters. And interestingly, a little aside, he never says Roman citizens. Like he always talks about other human beings. He has this global vision uh, of his uh, philosophy of life. So there's this, I would even go as far as to say that to really clashes with this idea of stoicism is a lowercase s, that you could say that stoicism is a philosophy of love, and that wouldn't be going too far, although it might seem surprising. At the beginning of the meditations, Marcus is describing one of his stoic tutors, and he says that this man was free from the passions, and by passions the stoic mean unhealthy or irrational emotions, not all emotions. He says he's free from unhealthy passions, but full of love. Philistorgia is the word he uses, which kind of means like paternal or family affection. And we know from Marcus's private letters, incidentally, that he was an incredibly a warm and affectionate man to the extent that it would probably surprise a lot of readers today. You know, he's always very effusive about how much he loves his friends and his family. Um, as a, in terms of his personal character. So there's this whole other dimension to Stoicism. So you are here today to talk with our students and faculty. You've got a new book out, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Uh -huh. What are some of the key takeaways? What are you going to talk with our folks about today? Well, you know, when I, I wrote my first book on Stoicism, I was just comparing the Stoics and what they say, the psychological techniques that they have to what we have in, in cognitive therapy. And I, I drew up a kind of list of them, and there were 18 right? And some of those could be broken down further. So there are so many techniques and concepts that are of practical value in Stoicism. That's one of the things that, that drew me to it. 
So I, obviously we have to kind of pick two or three to talk about. So one of them would be what we now call cognitive distancing. So by the way, we don't always know what the Stoics called these techniques. Sometimes we have names for them, but sometimes we have to give them modern names. And cognitive distancing is this very subtle idea. But it's uh, so it's very surprising that the Stoics knew about it. They were way ahead of the game. And it's the realization that we, it's the ability to separate our thoughts from reality. Marcus Aurelius talks about this a lot. So it's the ability not to confuse the map with the terrain, as people sometimes say. The way that Aaron Beck described it in cognitive therapy would be, imagine you're wearing dark blue glasses and the whole world seems gloomy and blue and sad, and then you realise that somebody else is wearing rose-tinted glasses. So they're looking at the same world, but they see it very differently. And cognitive distancing would be the ability to separate those lenses from reality to take the glasses off and maybe have a look at them rather than looking through them all the time and fusing them, equating them with external reality as if you're assuming the world just is blue. You might think, no, like there's a difference between the blueness and the world. The blueness is a lens that I'm looking through. And the Stoics want us to realise that our value judgments are projected onto the world. When we think that a situation is a catastrophe, we're actually catastrophizing it, as we say in modern therapy, and to take more ownership. Because our natural tendency is just to fuse those judgments with reality as if they're properties of the external world. And change begins by peeling that layer of judgment away from external events and realizing it's something we're doing that we're projecting onto it. So this cognitive distancing, we now know there's a lot of research in modern psychotherapy that shows it may be one of the most powerful strategies in the field of psychotherapy. And another thing I would suggest is the view from above, which Marcus Aurelius also talks about a lot, as do other ancient authors. And it's this idea of viewing events from a God's eye view as if from really high above, or just putting things in a much bigger context. Again, in modern research in psychotherapy, we know that when people are anxious or angry, they tend to narrow the scope of their attention. So normally when we're relaxed and confident, we can do several things at once. I could be driving a car and thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. We can walk and chew gum. But when we're under stress, we we become much more monolithic in our thinking and our attention becomes narrowed in scope. And the Stoics rightly observed that when you broaden your attention spatially and chronologically, it tends to counteract the intensity of emotion. It sort of dilutes or waters down our feelings. I'll give you a good example of doing that chronologically. So for the Stoics, it might just be picturing things from really high above or imagining that the present moment is a tiny speck in the totality of space and time oh and as an aside again this is them being brutally honest about things they think this is the truth and if we pretended otherwise we'd be create, taking things out of context and committing a sort of live omission in a sense so the wise man thinks of everything in terms of the bigger context because that's the most truthful way of judging things in therapy a client when clients worry about things you know it's odd that they'll pick a particular time slice so if they worry about losing their job or the relationship breaking up they'll, they'll imagine walking into the boss's office or, or getting a phone call or having a conversation with a partner where, where they, they break up with them and then maybe you know the, the immediate aftermath of that but of course it's arbitrary when they stop they could just keep rolling the film as it were and, and so in therapy one of the easiest things a therapist can do is just to say to the client but what will probably happen next and the client will say, well, after my girlfriend dumps me, I guess I'll stay at home and I'll just cry in my beer or whatever. And the therapist might say, well, then probably what will happen next? And they might say, well, I, you know, I guess I'll, I'll just sit and watch TV and I won't go out for a while and I'll be really sad and I'll, I'll ruminate about it. And the therapist might say, and then what will probably happen next? 
And then they say, well, I guess I'll go back out and I'll maybe I'll start dating people again and stuff. And then what will probably happen next? I guess eventually I'll find somebody and I'll have another relationship. And then what will probably happen next? And then if you, as long as you keep turning the clock forward, then it, it usually dilutes things and the catastrophe doesn't seem as catastrophic because you're viewing it within a broader temporal or chronological context. And the Stoics tried to do that on a grand philosophical scale because they knew that it induces a sense of mental calm and equanimity. So what are some techniques that our listeners could use today? Uh-huh. That, so that would be one of them. If I feel myself starting yeah. to get anxious or if I realize I'm, I'm having a strong emotional reaction to something, I can play that out further. I can also recognize this is a one particular moment and one particular issue and a whole big, great big world of things. What are some other things that folks can do? Well, the other versions of the view from above would be just visualizing things from really high above. And so, you know, almost like Zeus looking down from Olympus, like we've maybe seen in Clash of the Titans and old movies and stuff, you know. So try to imagine a kind of helicopter view. Or or you can even do it symbolically. Sometimes I might draw a circle on a piece of paper and put a dot in the middle. And then I might imagine the circle symbolizes the whole universe, the whole space and time. And the tiny dot in the middle is the current problem that I'm facing. So just picturing it in your mind's eye or even symbolizing a problem to yourself in terms of this kind of broader perspective can often have a, a calming effect and, and help us to, to think about things a little bit more rationally or constructively. Mm. So if folks wanted to know more about Stoicism, where can they turn? Well, I think you mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm part of a non-profit organization called Modern Stoicism, which originated about, uh, oh gosh, what, seven or eight years ago now in the UK. And so the Modern Stoicism website is just modernstoicism, or one word, dot com. And if you go there, we have a huge blog, we have free events that we run every year, we have an, uh, conferences locally and internationally. And you, there are hundreds of articles on there that people can read. So if they want to go to the Modern Stoicism website, they'll find a lot of really good resources there. And also my own website is just my name. It's donaldrobertson.name. So instead of .com, it's .name. And you'll find all my articles and downloads and uh, some free courses and stuff there as well. That's a good place to start, I think. Great. So this is our last question. What are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? Well, the honest answer to that is that I'm reading something that maybe your readers won't be as excited about, which is uh, Tacitus's uh, Germania. <laughs> like, so that Because I'm doing some research for a graphic novel that I'm writing, and so I wanted to know more about the so-called barbarians, as the, as the Romans call them and the Greeks call them. But I, I think the last sort of exciting book for, from a, a listener's perspective might be uh, more generally of interest is I, I reviewed a book, I reviewed a lot of self-help books recently and the, the one that I liked most was a book by a British magician or a, a mentalist technically, a kind of illusionist called Darren Brown, who I don't know if he's maybe not as well known here, but he's a household name in Britain, he's on TV all the time. And so Darren Brown is an illusionist, a mentalist, and he wrote a really good self-help book called Happy. And it was very well informed and it was beautifully written. I was surprised. He's obviously a very uh, erudite and, and literate man. And he was very thoughtful as well. He suggested certain psychological techniques. And then he said, well, I think there might be drawbacks to this. Or there's this idea I'm not entirely convinced about it, but this is what I think of it. I almost thought it was too good, if that makes sense. I kind of thought... 
a little, with a little bit of sadness. I'm not sure that this is going to reach the audience that it deserves to reach because it's perhaps even too kind of thoughtful and balanced and considered. You know, maybe people uh, to reach out a bigger audience, you'd need to simplify things a little bit more. But I, I so I would urge people to read that book because I thought it was an excellent book and I, it was a, a joy as well because it was a real surprise. So it's called Happy by Darren Brown. It just came out a few years ago. Excellent. Well, I'll check that out. And I'm looking forward to seeing your graphic novel when that comes out sometime in the next year or so. Yeah, about another year and a half, I think. It's a bit of a slow process. Having all the artwork done takes a little bit of a t- uh, time. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. So, Mr. Robinson, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at, at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jen Padjahau, our show manager, Captain Matt Brewer, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thanks for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.